Introduction to Felix Holt, The Radical. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Felix Holt, The Radical by George Eliot. Introduction. Five and thirty years ago, the glory had not yet departed from the old coach roads. The great roadside inns were still brilliant with well-polished tankards, the smiling glances of pretty barmaids, and the repartees of jocose ostlers. The mail still announced itself by the merry notes of the horn. The hedge-cutter or the rick-thatcher might still know the exact hour by the unfailing yet otherwise meteoric apparition of the pea-green tally-ho or the yellow independent and elderly gentlemen in pony chaises quartering nervously to make way for the rolling swinging swiftness had not ceased to remark that times were finally changed since they used to see the pack-horses and hear the tinkling of their bells on their very highway in those days there were pocket boroughs a birmingham unrepresented in parliament and compelled to make strong representations out of it unrepealed corn laws three and sixpenny letters a brawny and many breeding pauperism, and other departed evils. But there were some pleasant things, too, which have also departed. Non omnia grandior itis quae fugiamus habet, says the wise goddess. You have not the best of it in all things, O youngsters. The elderly man has his enviable memories, and not the least of them is the memory of a long journey in mid-spring or autumn on the outside of a stage-coach. Posterity may be shot like a bullet through a tube, by atmospheric pressure from Winchester to Newcastle. That is a fine result to have among our hopes. But the slow old-fashioned way of getting from one end of our country to the other is the better thing to have in the memory. The tube journey can never lend much to picture and narrative. It is as barren as an exclamatory, oh! Whereas the happy outside passenger seated on the box from the dawn to the gloaming gathered enough stories of English life, enough of English labours in town and country, enough aspects of earth and sky, to make episodes for a modern odyssey. Suppose only that his journey took him through the central plain, watered at one extremity by the Avon, at the other by the Trent, as the morning silvered the meadows with their long lines of bushy willows marking the watercourses, or burnished the golden corn-ricks clustered near the long roofs of some midland homestead. He saw the full-uddered cows driven from their pasture to the early milking. Perhaps it was the shepherd, head-servant of the farm, who drove them, his sheep-dog following with a heedless, unofficial air of a beadle in undress. The shepherd, with a slow and slouching walk, timed by the walk of grazing beasts, moved aside as if unwillingly, throwing out a monosyllabic hint to his cattle. His glance, accustomed to rest on things very near the earth, seemed to lift itself with difficulty to the coachman. Mail or stage-coach for him belonged to that mysterious distant system of things called government, which, whatever it might be, was no business of his, any more than the most outlying nebula or the coal-sacks of the southern hemisphere. His solar system was the parish, the master's temper, and the casualties of lambing time were his region of storms. He cut his bread and bacon with his pocket-knife, and felt no bitterness except in the matter of pauper labourers, and the bad luck that sent contrarious seasons and the sheep-rot. He and his cows were soon left behind, and the homestead, too, with its pond overhung by elder-trees, 
its untidy kitchen garden and cone-shaped yew tree arbour. But everywhere the bushy hedgerows wasted the land with their straggling beauty, shrouded the grassy borders of the pastures with catkinned hazels, and tossed their long blackberry branches on the cornfields. Perhaps they were white with May, or starred with pale pink dog-roses. Perhaps the urchins were already nutting amongst them, or gathering the plenteous crabs. It was worth the journey only to see those hedgerows, the liberal homes of unmarketable beauty, of the purple-blossomed ruby-buried nightshade, of the wild convolvulus climbing and spreading in tendril strength till it made a great curtain of pale green hearts and white trumpets, of the many-tubed honeysuckle which, in its most delicate fragrance, hid a charm more subtle and penetrating than beauty. Even if it were winter, the hedgerows showed their coral, the scarlet haws, the deep crimson hips, with lingering brown leaves to make a resting-place for the jewels of the hoar-frost. Such hedgerows were often as tall as the labourers' cottages dotted along the lanes, or clustered into a small hamlet, their little dingy windows telling, like thick-filmed eyes, of nothing but the darkness within. The passenger on the coach-box bowled along above such a hamlet, saw chiefly the roofs of it. Probably it turned its back on the road, and seemed to lie away from everything but its own patch of earth and sky, away from the parish church by long fields and green lanes, away from all intercourse except that of tramps. If its face could be seen, it was most likely dirty, but the dirt was Protestant dirt, and the big, bold, gin-breathing tramps were Protestant tramps. There was no sign of superstition near, no crucifix or image to indicate a misguided reverence. The inhabitants were probably so free from superstition that they were in much less awe of the parson than of the overseer. Yet they were saved from the excesses of Protestantism by not knowing how to read, and by the absence of handlooms and mines to be the pioneers of dissent. They were kept safely in the via media of indifference, and could have registered themselves in the census by a big black mark as members of the Church of England. But there were trim, cheerful villages, too, with a neat or handsome parsonage and grey church set in the midst. There was the pleasant tinkle of the blacksmith's anvil, the patient cart-horses waiting at his door, the basket-maker peeling his willow wands in the sunshine, the wheelwright putting the last touch to a blue cart with red wheels, here and there a cottage with bright transparent windows, showing pots of blooming balsams or geraniums, and little gardens in front all double daisies or dark wallflowers. At the well clean and comely women carrying yoked buckets, and towards the free school small Britons dawdling on and handling their marbles in the pockets of unpatched corduroys adorned with brass buttons. The land around was rich and marly. Great corn-stacks stood in the rick-yards, for the rick-burners had not found their way hither. The homesteads were those of rich farmers who paid no rent and had the rare advantage of a lease and could afford to keep their corn till prices had risen. The coach would be sure to overtake some of them on their way to their outlying fields or to the market-town, sitting heavily on their well-groomed horses or weighing down one side of an olive-green gig. They probably thought of the coach with some contempt as an accommodation for people who had not their own gigs or who, wanting to travel to London and such distant places, belonged to the trading and less solid part of the nation. 
the passenger on the box could see that this was the district of protuberant optimists, sure that old England was the best of all possible countries, and that if there were any facts which had not fallen under their own observation, they were facts not worth observing. The district of clean little market towns, without manufactures, of fat livings, an aristocratic clergy, and low poor rates. But as the day wore on, the scene would change, the land would begin to be blackened with coal-pits, the rattle of hand-looms to be heard in hamlets and villages. Here were powerful men walking queerly with knees bent outward from squatting in the mine, going home to throw themselves down in their blackened flannel and sleep through daylight, then rise and spend much of their high wages at the alehouse with their fellows of the benefit club. Here the pale faces of hand-loom weavers, men and women haggard from sitting up late at night to finish the week's work, hardly begun till the Wednesday. Everywhere the cottages and the small children were dirty, for the languid mothers gave their strength to the loom, pious dissenting women, perhaps, who took life patiently and thought that salvation depended chiefly on predestination and not at all on cleanliness. The gables of dissenting chapels now made a visible sign of religion and of a meeting-place to counterbalance the alehouse, even in the hamlets. But if a couple of old termagants were seen tearing each other's caps, it was a safe conclusion that, if they had not received the sacraments of the church, they had not at least given in to schismatic rites, and were free from the errors of voluntarism. The breath of the manufacturing town, which made a cloudy day and a red gloom by night on the horizon, diffused itself over all the surrounding country, filling the air with eager unrest. Here was a population not convinced that old England was as good as possible. Here were multitudinous men and women, aware that their religion was not exactly the religion of their rulers, who might therefore be better than they were, and who, if better, might alter many things which now made the world perhaps more painful than it need be, and certainly more sinful. Yet there were grey steeples too, and the churchyards with their grassy mounds and venerable headstones sleeping in the sunlight. There were broad fields and homesteads and fine old woods covering a rising ground, or stretching far by the roadside, allowing only peeps at the park and mansion which they shut in from the working-day world. In these Midland districts the traveller passed rapidly from one phase of English life to another. After looking down on a village dingy with coal-dust, noisy with the shaking of looms, he might skirt a parish of all fields, high hedges, and deep-rutted lanes. After the coach had rattled over the pavement of a manufacturing town, the scene of riots and trade-union meetings, it would take him in another ten minutes into a rural region, where the neighbourhood of the town only felt in the advantages of a near market for corn, cheese, and hay, and where men with a considerable banking account were accustomed to say that they never meddled with politics themselves. The busy scenes of the shuttle and the wheel, of the roaring furnace, of the shaft and the pulley, seemed to make but crowded nests in the midst of the large-spaced, slow-moving life of homesteads, and far-away cottages, and oak-sheltered parks. Looking at the dwellings scattered amongst the woody flats and the ploughed uplands, under the low grey sky which overhung them with an unchanging stillness, as if time itself were pausing, it was easy for the traveller to conceive that town and country had no pulse in common, except where the hand-looms made a far-reaching, straggling fringe 
about the great centres of manufacture, that till the agitation about Catholics in twenty-nine, rural Englishmen had hardly known more of Catholics than of the fossil mammals, and that their notion of reform was a confused combination of rick-burners, trades-union, Nottingham riots, and in general whatever required the calling out of the yeomanry. It was still easier to see that for the most part they resisted the rotation of crops and stood by their fallows. The coachman would perhaps tell how in one parish an innovating farmer, who talked of Sir Humphrey Davy, had been fairly driven out by popular dislike, as if he had been a confounded radical, and how the parson, having one Sunday preached from the words, Plough up the fallow ground of your hearts, the people thought he had made the text out of his own head, otherwise it would never have come so pat on a matter of business. But when they found it in the Bible at home, some said it was an argument for fallows, else why should the Bible mention fallows? But a few of the weaker sort were shaken, and thought it was an argument that fallow should be done away with, else the Bible would have said, Let your hearts lie fallow. And the next morning the parson had a stroke of apoplexy, which, as a coincident with a dispute about fallows, so set the parish against the innovating farmer, and the rotation of crops, that he could stand his ground no longer, and transferred his lease. The coachman was an excellent travelling companion and commentator on the landscape. He could tell the names of sights and persons, and explain the meanings of groups as well as the shade of Virgil in a more memorable journey. He had as many stories about parishes and the men and women in them as the wanderer in the excursion. Only his style was different. His view of life had originally been genial, and such as became a man who was well warmed within and without, and held a position of easy, undisputed authority. But the recent initiation of railways had embittered him. He now, as in a perpetual vision, saw the ruined country strewn with shattered limbs, and regarded Mr. Huskisson's death as proof of God's anger against Stevenson. Why, every inn on the road would be shut up! And at that word the coachman looked before him with the blank gaze of one who had driven his coach to the outermost edge of the universe, and saw his leaders plunging into the abyss. Still, he would soon relapse from the high prophetic strain to the familiar one of narrative. He knew whose the land was wherever he drove, what noblemen had half ruined themselves by gambling, who made handsome returns of rent, and who was at daggers drawn with his eldest son. He perhaps remembered the fathers of actual baronets, and knew stories of their extravagant or stingy housekeeping, whom they had married, whom they had horsewhipped, whether they were particular about preserving their game, and whether they had had much to do with canal companies. About any actual landed proprietor he could also tell whether he was a reformer or an anti-reformer. That was a distinction which had turned up in latter times, and along with it the paradox, very puzzling to the coachman's mind, that there were men of old family and large estate who voted for the bill. He did not grapple with the paradox. He let it pass, with all the discreetness of an experienced theologian or learned scholiast, preferring to point his whip at some object which could raise no objections. No such paradox troubled our coachman when, leaving the town of Treby Magna behind him, he drove between the hedges for a mile or so, crossed the queer long bridge over the river Lapp, and then put his horses to a swift gallop up the hill by the low-nestled village of Little Treby, till they were on the fine level road, 
skirted on one side by grand larches, oaks, and witch-elms, which sometimes opened so far as to let the travellers see that there was a park behind them. How many times in the year, as the coach rolled past the neglected-looking lodges, which interrupted the screen of trees and showed the river winding through a finely timbered park, had the coachman answered the same questions, or told the same things without being questioned? That? Oh, that was Transom Court, a place there had been a fine sight of lawsuits about. Generations back the heir of the Transom name had somehow bargained away the estate, and it fell to the Durfies very distant connections, who only called themselves Transoms because they had got the estate. But the Durfey's claim had been disputed over and over again. And the coachman, if he had been asked, would have said, though he might have to fall down dead the next minute, that property didn't always get into the right hands. However, the lawyers had found their luck in it, and people who inherited estates that were lord about often lived in them as poorly as a mouse in a hollow cheese, and by what he could make out, that had been the way with the present Durfies, or Transoms, as they called themselves. As for Mr. Transom, he was as poor half-witted a fellow as you'd wish to see, but she was master, had come of a high family, and had a spirit. You might see it in her eye, and the way she sat her horse. Forty years ago, when she came into this country, they said she was a picture. But her family was poor, and so she took up with a hatchet-faced fellow like Transom. And the eldest son had been just such another as his father, only worse, a wild sort of half-natural, who'd got into bad company. They said his mother hated him, and wished him dead, for she'd got another son quite of a different cut, who had gone to foreign parts when he was younger, and she wanted her favourite to be heir. But heir or no heir, lawyer German had had his picking out of the estate. Not a door in his big house but what was the finest polished oak, all got off the Transom estate. If anybody liked to believe he had paid for it, they were welcome. However, lawyer German had sat on that box many and many a time. He had made the wills of most people thereabout. The coachman would not say that Lawyer German was not the man he would choose to make his own will some day. It was not so well for a lawyer to be over-honest, else he might not be up to the other people's tricks. And as for the Transom business, there had been ins and outs in time gone by so that you couldn't look into it straight backward. At this Mr. Sampson, everybody in North Loamshire knew Sampson's coach, would screw his features into a grimace expressive of entire neutrality, and appear to aim his whip at a particular spot on the horse's flank. If the passenger was curious for further knowledge concerning the Transom affairs, Samson would shake his head and say there had been fine stories in his time. But he never condescended to state what the stories were. Some attributed this reticence to a wise incredulity, others to a want of memory, others to simple ignorance. But at least Samson was right in saying that there had been fine stories, meaning, ironically, stories not altogether creditable to the parties concerned. And such stories often come to be fine in a sense that is not ironical, for there is seldom any wrongdoing which does not carry along with it some downfall of blindly climbing hopes, some hard entail of suffering, 
some quickly satiated desire that survives, with the life in death of old paralytic vice, to see itself cursed by its woeful progeny, some tragic mark of kinship in one brief life, to the far-stretching life that went before, and to the life that is to come after. Such as has raised the pity and terror of men ever since they began to discern between will and destiny. But these things are often unknown to the world, for there is much pain that is quite noiseless, and vibrations that make human agonies are often a mere whisper in the roar of a hurrying existence. There are glances of hatred that stab and raise no cry of murder, robberies that leave a man and woman for ever beggared of peace and joy, yet kept secret by the sufferer, committed to no sound except that of low moans in the night, seen in no writing except that made on the face by the slow months of suppressed anguish and early morning tears. Many an inherited sorrow that has marred a life has been breathed into no human ear. The poets have told us of a dolorous enchanted forest in the underworld, the thorn-bushes there, and the thick bark stems, have human histories hidden in them. The power of unuttered cries dwell in the passionless seeming branches, and the red warm blood is darkly feeding the quivering nerves of a sleepless memory that watches through all dreams. These things are a parable. End of Introduction <laughs>